Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Well, let me again say welcome to Horizon West Church. Thank you guys for being uh, with us, whether you're on campus or online. Um, I do want to just highlight a couple of things that Austin mentioned. That Spring Fling event on March 27th, if you know people uh, of any age, maybe especially those who have children in that kind of elementary age range, that's going to be a great event. And the reason we do that is primarily uh, it goes right into our vision. We want to be a community of good friends together doing good works and sharing the good news of Jesus. And so uh, you've got to be there for, for the community aspect, but we also want that to be a good news opportunity. Uh, we want to do events like this where it's easy for you to invite a neighbor, a friend, a family member, uh, where they can kind of be exposed to, to Christians, be exposed to a church, maybe even be exposed to the good news of Jesus. And so I want to encourage you to capitalize on that opportunity to invite. Um, and then Easter Sunday, uh, if you're scratching your head going, how are we meeting on Sunday? Well, that's happening right here. And in the same way that we did Christmas Eve services with Oasis Church, we're going to combine uh, as well for Sunday morning services on April 4th. Uh, Oasis is the church that meets here on Sundays, and so we're going to combine with them on that Sunday to celebrate the resurrection together. It's going to be an awesome thing and yet another great uh, invite opportunity. Uh, You probably know this, but if there is one Sunday in the calendar year where an unchurched person might give church a chance, it's Easter. Uh, So we want to encourage you, don't miss that opportunity. Services at 9, 10, 15, or 11, 30. Uh, man, what a, what a cool thing, John, to be able to celebrate baptism with you tonight, um, and uh, just neat to see God at work in the lives of people. I, I get the privilege of hearing stories that many of you uh, only get to kind of see the tip of the iceberg on, uh, but I can just tell you that this is a brother in Christ who uh, God's doing a great work in. It's, it's an honor uh, to walk that journey with you as a church family. Well, tonight is a little bit bittersweet because we're going to be wrapping up our study of the book of Nehemiah, and I have loved the, the, the digging for gold all week that happens in my sermon preparation, and then the opportunity to share uh, just what God has revealed in his word. And so if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and join me in Nehemiah chapter 13. Um, we're also going to have it on the screen here. And these first few verses, the first three verses really, are going to be kind of the preamble. They're going to kind of be the setup to where we're going. So let me begin there. Nehemiah 13 verses 1 through 3, and here's what it says. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but instead hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all of those of foreign descent." What in the world is happening here, right? Like that's like a really interesting way to start the last chapter of the book of Nehemiah. Let me do a little bit of a a peel back the curtain on these two people groups that are mentioned here, the Ammonites and the Moabites. This is referring back to the book of Numbers uh, where these two people groups or these two nations, because of their fear of the favor of God on the people of God, uh, stood in the way of them entering the promised land refused to provide for them, refused to extend an open hand to them. And because of that, it was written in the law that these two uh, groups of people were not to be part of the covenant community. Now, I need to make an important distinction here at this point. 
And you need to know that when the Old Testament would refer to the exclusion of certain uh, people groups, that it was never, uh, for instance, the prohibition of marrying or, or otherwise, the issue is never racial, it is always religious. Okay, that's really, really important that you know that. Otherwise, you're going to really misunderstand the heart of God revealed in the Old Testament. The issue is not skin color or, or language or ethnicity. The issue is that the nations around Israel worshipped idols and false gods. And God said, that's not to be my people. In fact, there is evidence of people who married into the Jewish community and became part of the covenant people of God. Uh, one of those famously is Rahab, who is a Canaanite. She inhabited the land that God was dispossessing to give to the people of Israel, yet she had faith and was welcomed into the covenant community. Another is Ruth, and Ruth, guess what, was a Moabite. So this very people group has, who has been singled out, we know, based on the, uh, the evidence of God's word, that the issue is not race or, religion, uh, race or ethnicity. The issue is faith. And everyone who comes to God in faith is received, right? So, so I just need to make that clear uh, because what happens with the Israelites in verse 3 is it says they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now let me ask an important question. Is that what the law told them to do? Not the way I read it. It singled out a couple of people groups and said, man, if there's these people groups who are unre but they're just going to go, well, anybody who's not like me is going to get put out. I see a little bit of the natural inclination of the human heart here to, to overextend or misapply God's commands and not do exactly as he has actually commanded them to do. Now, as we get ready to read verses four through nine, I want to, uh, you're going to see it in the passage, but I want to talk for a minute about the timeline of the story of Nehemiah, because it's going to come up and, and it'll just be clearer if I, if I spell it out. We know that in the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, so the Persian Empire rules most of the known world. Artaxerxes is the king. He lives in the capital of Susa. Nehemiah had been a servant to the king. Remember, he was a cupbearer. And we know that in the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign, Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem, leads the building project, but doesn't leave. He stays in Jerusalem. And for 12 years, he serves as the governor of Judah. And then in the 32nd year of the reign of Artaxerxes, he's, he returns to Susa. And we don't know the exact timeline. The Bible simply says after some time back in Susa, Nehemiah is going to request permission to return to Jerusalem. And what we're going to see play out in the remaining ch uh, chapter is what happens when Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem. In each sequence, and there's four of them, we're going to see a problem, Nehemiah's solution, and a principle that we can apply in the 21st century. So here we go. Nehemiah 13, verses 4 through 9. Uh, now before this, Eliashib, the high priest, uh, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by the commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. And while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw out the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and also the frankincense. 
The first problem we're going to encounter in Nehemiah 13 is the dishonoring of the temple. And what is Nehemiah's solution? Well, he's going to clean house. He's going to clean house. He's throwing furniture out of the temple. It reminds me of Jesus. Remember in John chapter 2? And then again later in the Gospels when he sees the people uh, selling and taking advantage of the people. And he says, zeal for my father's house will consume me. And he starts flipping tables and, and driving everyone out. This same passion is now inflaming the heart of Nehemiah as he sees the temple of God dishonored. And we see in these verses two names emerge. One is Tobiah. If that name rings a bell, it's because Tobiah has appeared several times throughout the story of Nehemiah, and it is always a bad thing. Tobiah is an Ammonite. He has actively opposed the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem, and we learn here that he happens to be the relative of the other guy that gets named in the passage, a guy named Eliashib. You might have noticed as I read it that I, that I said high priest, and you went, well, I just read priest. But the truth is, we know from earlier in Nehemiah that Eliashib is not just a priest, he's the high priest of Jerusalem. And what Eliashib has done in Nehemiah's absence is he's cleared out the storage house, the, the, the storage unit, if you will, in the temple, where all the grains and the oil and the wine, the offerings for the Levites are supposed to go. He's gotten rid of that and he's turned the storage room into a luxury suite for this enemy of God named Tobiah. And Nehemiah is not having it. Now, this is disturbing enough on its own, but it's even more disturbing when we look back at Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1, and we find this. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. Now, what is significant about this verse is that chapter 3 is going to give us the list of those who built the wall in Jerusalem. And the first name that's going to get mentioned is Eliashib. Meaning when the vision of God was cast, Eliashib was the first to step up and say, guys, we're going to do this. We're going to build this wall. Come with me. He gets his name there. But it also gives us the first principle we're going to look at tonight, and it's this. Not all who begin well, finish well. Eliashib comes on the scene as this heroic worker and servant of God doing the right thing. He ends, the last time we see him, he is dishonoring the temple of God. There's an a illustration of this uh, from, a, from the world of sports, the 2006 Winter Olympics. Anybody uh, a snowboarder? Anybody ever been snowboarding? Okay, we have a couple. We didn't have any at the other service, so that's, that's cool. You know, we're in Central Florida, so it is what it is. I, I took the kids uh, two weeks ago when Nikki and I were in Wisconsin with the kids, and they went sledding for the first time, and it was awesome. And my eight-year-old Addison, the first time she gets on a sled, she just stands up on her feet and just goes and goes down the whole hill standing. I'm like, I've got an Olympian on my hands. This is really cool. This girl's a snowboarder, right? Well, Lindsay Jacobella said at the 2006 Winter Olympics was the uh, odds-on favorite to win. Uh, it was a, uh, the racing event, not the, the showmanship event, not the trick event. And Lindsay Jacob Ellis, if you know the story, was coming around uh, one of the last uh, curves, the last bends. Most of the other snowboarders had wiped out. It was especially slick on the slopes that day. They had wiped out. There was only one that was still on her board, and she was probably 80 yards behind Lindsay Jacob Ellis. And as she came into the last jump, Lindsay looked over her shoulder, saw no one behind her, hit the jump, did a heel grab, and when she landed, wiped out in the snow. As she got herself situated and got back on the hill, the other snowboarder passed her to win the gold medal and Lindsay came in second. She began so well 
and yet finished so poorly. Bleacher Report, commenting on that, uh, that instance, said this, this was not your average choke. She did not freeze up and make a costly mistake. Instead, she was too lax, and because of it, she lost the top prize in her sport. She was too lax. She got comfortable with what had been. She got comfortable with a lead, maybe even a little full of herself, and because of it, she wiped out. She failed to do what the Apostle Paul knew to do. Philippians 3, verses 12 to 14. Not that I have already obtained all this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, if anybody could do a heel grab, spiritually speaking, I'm thinking Paul's your guy, right? Like, like he's way out in front of the competition. He, there's no other person like the Apostle Paul. Nobody else is going to prison as often. Nobody else is being shipwrecked as often. Nobody else is being bullied by the Pharisees more often. Nobody else is writing more scripture or traveling more miles. And he says, but I'm not there yet. I got more to give. I press on toward the goal to win the prize. I want to say a brief word to those of you that are in the last half of your race. And I can say that because next year I'll be 40 and I'll be joining you. But if that's you, you're in that second half of your, of your life's work. Maybe you finished raising kids. Maybe you're thinking grandkids and retirement and those kinds of things. Can I just plead with you and tell you that your church needs you to finish well? We need you to press on. We need you to continue serving and giving and modeling faithfulness because we're coming behind you and we need to know that it's possible. Unfortunately, we live in a day and an age where we've seen way too many men and women and mostly men start off well and finish poorly. Let me ask this question. What do we do with those who once appeared to be genuine servants of God but experience moral failure or loss of faith? There are prominent instances of this in our world even now. And the question is, what do we do with those? Some would say, and they're even asking this question, do I stop reading those books? Do, do, do I stop listening to those podcasts? What do I do with such a great failure? And here's what I believe we do. We honor the good they did. And we grieve their failures and shortcomings. And we allow God to be their judge. Right? We can be honest. In fact, we must be honest about our so-called heroes of the faith. They're fallen men. They're fallen women. Like Eliashib, some of them start well and genuinely love the Lord and have genuinely served him. But somewhere they make a right turn, a left turn, they get off track and they become a cautionary tale. Last summer, when things in our country were especially volatile and there were protests and riots and responses and all of those things happening. One of the issues at the center of that conversation was statues. Do you remember this? Do we pull the statues down? Do we leave them up? Do they go in the museums? What do we do with these statues to men that we're now reflecting on and going, I'm not sure that these should have statues. And I was talking with my father-in-law and I, and I just said this, the problem with statues, whether they be to a disgraced football coach or to a disgraced comedian or a founding father. The problem with statues is that no one is good but God alone. And when you build a statue for someone, it's like saying, this person's all good. We, we know there's others, but this is a hero. 
And I said to my father, I said, can you imagine if of anybody that ever lived, if there's somebody that you would think deserves a statue, perhaps it would be David, the man after God's own heart, the, the giant slayer. But you know what? If I'm Uriah's family member, I say, not that guy. <laughs> You're going to build a statue to the guy that killed my brother? No, no, no. He doesn't deserve a statue. You're going to pull that one down. Or what about Moses? Nope, Moses failed. And the problem with statues, whether they should come down or not, I would say maybe we should never be building them. Because remember God said, don't craft a graven image in the, in the image of anything under heaven or on earth. Because when we build images to people, we're somehow communicating, we're subtly communicating, this is what goodness looks like. And there is no one good but God alone. You know what God had the people do instead of building statues? When he, crossed, when he had them cross through the Red Sea, when he had them cross through the Jordan River, he said, gather a pile of rocks and remember what I did here. He didn't say build a monument to, 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 to Moses or Joshua. He said, build a pile of rocks and there remember that I came through for the people of God. Here's the takeaway. No one is good but God and no one finishes well without taking intentional steps to do so. Go back to the passage with me. Nehemiah 13, verses 10 to 14. Nehemiah says this, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his own field. So I confronted the officials and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and I set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of their grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over, uh, over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Verse 14, remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. What's the dishonoring that's happening here? They're dishonoring the, the tithe, right? They're dishonoring the tithe. And Nehemiah's solution is to confront this issue and to implement accountability. That's what these treasurers are going to do. They're going to make sure the offerings are coming into the storehouse. And they're going to make sure they're going back out to those to whom they are allocated. Now, why is this a big deal? Let me tell you, because the temple workers, those who were supposed to be in the temple serving the Lord and the people, were not having anything with which they could feed themselves and their families. So what did they do? They returned to their fields to work their harvests so that they could survive. And Nehemiah says, this is not as it should be. In other words, they were left to fend for themselves and they left the house of God forsaken. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 4 gives us this principle. You shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. You go, well, I don't have any oxen, so that doesn't apply to me. But here's the thing. Paul said on two occasions, once in Corinthians and once in Timothy, this is not about ox. That's not who God cares about. What God is saying is for those who would be in spiritual leadership, and this is the principle, principle number two, leaders in the church should be focused on leading the church. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward, right? Leaders in the church should be focused on leading the church. And the way that that is enabled is when the people of God generously give. Now, I started out at a church that, that that wasn't possible for whatever reason, and I worked several extra jobs to make it work, and God used that as a season in my life. But praise God, that was only a season. And because of the generosity of God's people in their giving of the tithes and the offerings, I get to give my full-time energy and focus to serving you as your pastor, to preparing sermons, 
to counseling, to meeting at Starbucks and talking through the issues of life, to doing the things, to praying for you. And, and, and I'm not running here to there trying to make an income work because you've been generous and we get to lead and be focused on leading. Look at Nehemiah 13, 14. Nehemiah's response to all this, he says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. This is going to be the first of three times in the passage that Nehemiah says, Remember me. I want you to make a mental note of that, and we're going to move on. We'll come back to it in a minute. Nehemiah 13, go down to verse 15 with me. Nehemiah 13, beginning at verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food, Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. And so I confronted the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring about all this disaster on us and on this city? And now you're, beginning, uh, now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut, and I gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath, and I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. And then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them, and I said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love." The problem here is clear, right? They're dishonoring the Sabbath. The, the, the day that the Lord had told them to set aside as holy, they're, they're desecrating it. They're not taking one day a week to rest and to honor the Lord in a special and sacred way. They're just focused on, on commerce. They're focused on making money. They're focused on selling and trading. And Nehemiah's solution is to warn the guilty parties and then to order the closing of the gates on the evening of Sabbath. This is me when my kids won't stop rolling down the windows, and so I finally just roll them up and lock it. It's like, you're not doing it. I, I thought I could trust you, but you can't. And he's going, I'm not even going to give you an opportunity to do this. We're going to shut and lock the gates. And also, by the way, I'm going to threaten physical harm on those who, who try to, to not do this. So, so this is his solution to the problem. But here's what you need to know, importantly. Nehemiah recognized that the people's dishonoring of God would lead to their displacement from Jerusalem. What Nehemiah saw was that if they continued on the road they were walking, that ultimately it would lead to their exile and their enslavement. He understood the third of these principles we're going to look at in the passage, and it's this. You reap what you sow. This is a, a, a principle that's clearly established in the Old Testament. But this is not only an Old, Old Testament principle. Right? The New Testament, Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, this is how Paul says it. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. This is under grace. This is new covenant. And Paul says the principle holds. You reap what you sow. 
Now, someone might ask, where does grace come in? And this is how I would answer that. Grace gives us a clean record before God. It does not erase the natural consequences of sin. It gives us a clean record before God, but it does not erase the natural consequences of sin. Meaning that the prisoner who gloriously surrenders his life to Jesus and is set free from his sins is not also set free from the prison. He's got to serve his time. Or, or, or the student who, who fails to prepare, fails to study for the test, and then shoots up a Hail Mary prayer, is still going to fail the test, right? Because whatever you sow, that is what you're going to reap. One of the reasons that we see people come to the end of their life and have cataclysmic failure and collapse is because unknown to us, in some dark corner of their soul, they were planting seeds. Seeds of the flesh, seeds of sin. And when those seeds grew in and, and, and the harvest was reaped, it was destruction because those who sow to please the sinful nature will reap destruction from it. You reap what you sow. Nehemiah is able to see the inevitable outcome of the people's action. If you remember last week, we looked at this sin renewal cycle in the people of, of God. It's been true in the Old Testament through the New Testament, true today. But it's this movement from abundance to idolatry to slavery to desperation to deliverance. And unfortunately, the people here in Nehemiah 13 are, are going back into the cycle. They're going back into the breaking of God's commands and the breaking of God's laws. And Nehemiah is saying, guys, you got to stop. He's going to end that part of the passage with this second remember me saying, God, remember me for my good works. Remember the things that I've done and go with me to Nehemiah 13 verse 23. This is going to be the fourth and final sequence. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and I cursed them and I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalot the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And so I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his own work, and I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. And then Nehemiah will end with a statement, remember me, O oh my God, for good. Here's what's happening in this sequence is the dishonoring of what I'm going to call the holiness principle. Now, holiness doesn't mean perfection necessarily. What it means is, is separateness, distinction. God purposed that his people, beginning in the Old Testament, continuing into the age of the church, that his people should look different than the people around them. So he says, when you honor the Sabbath while everybody else is just trying to make more money and build bigger crops, you set that aside. You're honoring me. You're showing that you're different than the nations around you. When you bring in the tithes and the offerings and, and you give and, and you don't hold on to everything you have like the nations around you, it shows that you're distinct and that you are holy. But as the people went out and married women who were godless women, and not only did they marry them, but did you see what happened? They moved in the direction of godlessness, not the other way around. The children are speaking the language of the nations. 
not the language of the people of Israel. And, and Nehemiah is going to say, this is violating the principle of holiness. And so his solution is what? He's going to physically assault them. <laughs> now, let me make an important note about the story of Nehemiah. You need to know that unlike God's dealings with Abraham or Moses or Isaiah or others, Nehemiah gets no face-to-face encounter with God. Nehemiah has what we have. He has the word, and he's trying to grapple with it and, and trying to let it govern his behavior, his thoughts, and his actions. He's trying to do the best with what he has. But you need to know that because you need to know that God did not tell Nehemiah to go beat these people and pull their hair out. Okay? This is, this is what we call something that is descriptive rather than prescriptive. Some scripture is prescriptive, meaning just like David confessed his sins and repented in Psalm 51, so you also should repent and confess your sins. But when David goes out and sleeps with a woman and has her husband killed, that's descriptive. It's telling us what David did. It is not saying that you also should do it. Let me say clearly, you should not physically assault people. But this is more evidence that the Bible deals honestly with its heroes. Remember, no statues in the Bible. These are real people. And in this case, Nehemiah is going to be a negative example of this fourth and final principle. Godly passion does not automatically lead to godly practice. You remember when Jesus was in the temple? I referred to this earlier. Remember, he's flipping tables and he's driving them out. But do you notice that he never puts a hand on somebody? And there is a big difference between throwing furniture and throwing fists. Jesus knew where to draw the line. And even though zeal for the Father's house was consuming him, he let his godly passion be godly practice. Nehemiah crossed the line. Because sometimes, even when the passion and the motivation is right, the practice or the action is not. I had to deal honestly and humbly with the fact that last summer in some of my social media sparrings, Defending justice and what I believed was right, I I took action and though my motivation may have been right, my passion might have been godly, my practice oftentimes was not. I found ego surfacing. I, I found winning the argument becoming more important because godly passion has to be stewarded. It's not automatically godly practice. Look one more time with me at this last statement in the record of Nehemiah. And this is literally the last words of the book and it closes. Nehemiah one last time says this, Remember me, O my God, for good. We know from Nehemiah's other remember me statements or prayers that what Nehemiah is saying is, God, your people have been dishonorable. Your people have broken your law, but I've done my best. I've tried to, to, to return to the Sabbath. I've tried to, to get the tithes in the storehouses. I've tried to protect the temple. I've tried to do all these good things. Lord, remember the good works that I've done and count them to my credit. Now, let me zoom out as we prepare to close out the book of Nehemiah. Let me zoom out to the 30,000 foot view. And let me remind you that in all of the historical narrative of the, of the Old Testament, Nehemiah is going to come at the very end. After Nehemiah, there's only one other voice. It's Malachi, and he's going to just give one brief prophecy. But as far as leaders for the people of Israel, Nehemiah is the last one. He comes off the scene in about 432 BC. And for the next 400 years, there is what's called uh, the age of silence or the 400 years of silence. No scripture is written. We have no biblical record of God's people in that 400 year period. But here's what we know. That what was happening in Nehemiah chapter 13 began to drive a chasm 
among the people of God. And so 400 years later, when Jesus shows up, there's some who have followed after these law-breaking people and they've become prostitutes or tax collectors or zealots or whatever it is, and they're dishonoring God's commands. And you've got another group of people who in the spirit and passion of Nehemiah have formed a group called the Pharisees. Men who were zealous for the ways of God, but their passion did not produce godly practice. When Nehemiah asks God to remember his good works, my mind just inevitably goes to someone else who turned to Jesus and said, remember me. I want to show you what I believe is the purpose of the book of Nehemiah in this comparison. If there was a way for the people of God to keep the law, if there was a way for them to have the, the right leaders to lead them to not going back into that crazy cycle over and over again, Nehemiah and his leadership and the law of God were it, but it failed. And then we see in this new covenant, something called grace, something called mercy. When a dying thief on a cross looks to Jesus, he says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. You remember what Jesus said? This day, you're going to be with me in paradise. He didn't have any good works. He wasn't a man of God like Nehemiah. He didn't cleanse it. He was a thief. He was dying. He had no way to redeem himself. And Jesus said, it's okay. I can redeem him. I can redeem him. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. I love the way the New International Version renders it. It says what the law was powerless to do. God did by sending his own son. It may be that some of you are still working from a law framework, an Old Testament framework that says, if I've done enough good, yeah, I know there's this Jesus thing, but it's also about this. No, it's, it's not. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one could boast. It's only from the place of salvation by grace through faith that Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. You cannot please God apart from faith in Jesus. It is all grace. What has come to be one of my favorite books, a book I read uh, during quarantine, I believe, last year. A theologian named Brennan Manning, who has since passed away. Brennan Manning's life was about the radical grace of God, and his final book was a book called All is Grace. And I want to read for you uh, the way that he closed out that book. My life is a witness to vulgar grace, a grace that amazes as it offends, a grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wage as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5, a grace that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck toward the prodigal reeking of sin and wraps him up and decides to throw a party, no ifs, ands, or buts, a grace that raises bloodshot eyes to a dying thief's request, please remember me, and assures him, you bet. A grace that is the pleasure of the Father fleshed out in the carpenter Messiah, Jesus the Christ, who left the Father's side not for heaven's sake, 
but for our sakes, yours and mine. This vulgar grace is indiscriminate compassion. It works without asking anything of us. It's not cheap, it's free. And as such, it will always be a banana peel for the orthodox foot and a fairy tale for the grown-up sensibility. Grace is sufficient even though we huff and puff with all our might to find someone or something it cannot cover. Grace is enough. What Nehemiah would not be able to accomplish, what the law could never do, God sent his son, Jesus, to die on a cross. And through the blood of Jesus, the grace of God would come to all who receive him by faith. Friends, if you have never crossed that line, if you have never surrendered your life to the mercy of Jesus, it's all you have and it is enough. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you for your word, God, and the way that it shows us that, man, we could never cross that divide, Lord. We could never reach you. Men and women much better than us came and did their very best, and yet prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And so, God, we pray that in this moment, Lord, for those who have put their trust in you, those who are walking with you, would you remind us that it's still all about grace? You've, you've never changed your program. It's, it's not that we start with grace and we end with, with earning it. God, it's grace through and through. Let us remember that. And God, if there might be any man, any woman, any child in this room tonight who's still hoping that maybe they've done enough, maybe you'll remember them because of their works, God, would you remind us? It's the thief on the cross. It's the humble sinner. It's the one who comes and says, God, I have nothing, but I trust you. And I'm asking, would you save me? Lord, would you meet them where they are tonight? In Jesus' name. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service times, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.